Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore why we do what we do with some of the smartest and brightest people in the world, and so we can learn from them and share that knowledge with you. So, Tim, this might be a milestone interview for you, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> totally it was. I've been following our guest, David McCraney, for years and years, and his was one of the first podcasts that I ever listened to. And I, honestly, I really wanted to emulate his amazing work on the You Are Not So Smart podcast with behavioral groups. I mean, not that we could, you know, actually achieve what we aspire to, but <laughs> that was sort of my North Star, actually, when we got going. I, I know what you mean. I, I mean, I love his stuff from his books to the podcast to his interviews. He is just wickedly smart and he is just a fun guy, too. Oh, Man. totally. Totally yeah. fun. It was really wonderful to be able to talk to him about his new books, How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion and Persuasion, which is coming out at the end of June 2022, by the way. And I mean, I was just enthralled with you are not so smart but this book kurt it just blew me away same here what i loved about it tim and what i mentioned to david in the interview is that the style that he writes in is just so inviting it it just it pulls you into the book with stories and tales that are mesmerizing and they're informative and you can really tell that he started his career as a journalist and he has that that journalistic flair to his writing. Way, yeah. And he backs it up with great research, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, this book, and in our conversation with David, he explores how minds change and offers lots of examples of minds changing. He has great stories about conspiracy theorists, pseudo-cult members, and everyday folks who just hold really strong opinions. And he beautifully documents their journeys as they begin with a set of beliefs and then they start to question their thinking and then they come out on the other end of the process with a totally new understanding. Oh, my gosh. It is a fascinating exploration of the human mind and the steps that people go through in changing strongly held beliefs or in holding those beliefs really tight. And we talk about some of the methods that people use to try to change those beliefs. And also the things that we often think work, but Tim, in reality, the things that we often think work often really don't work. Yeah, uh, well said, well said. Okay, Groovers, we got to let you know that this is a long episode. Oh, it's a long episode. <laughs> we were having so much fun talking to David about so many different and very interesting things that we just kept talking and talking and talking and talking yeah. and talking <laughs> and talking. And... Okay, so if you can't listen to this in a single setting, a single sitting, we apologize, look. But also know that you don't have to squeeze the whole thing into a single run around the lake. It, to make it easier, we've decided to help you by interspersing our grouping sessions throughout the conversation. We'll interrupt our interview with David, sort of according to the natural flow of the conversation, and then Kurt and I will jump in to highlight some of the things that we found interesting in that section. Yeah, and we do this a few times throughout. So you can pause your listening there. You know, it might be a good place to pause it. Or if you want to power through and be a trooper, you can do that as well. Either way, we hope that you find the discussion as interesting as we did. Yeah, and with that, you can start that long run around the lake or, as we like to say, sit back, <laughs> get a comfy grab of glass of your favorite mind-changing drink, 
and enjoy our conversation with David McCraney. David McCraney, welcome to Behavioral Groups. I am so happy to be here, humongous fan, and as I was saying in the very lengthy before we said hit record, uh, I think you're doing some of the best work out there, especially in this space. So I'm really very, very, very happy to be here. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. My we head just gotten... got like three sizes bigger than, than it really <laughs> should like, be. Like the Grinch, uh, you know, after Christmas Day. <laughs> Holy smokes. Uh, okay. We want to start with a speed round. So first of all, tell us warm coffee or iced coffee. Which oh, would warm. you get? Well, okay, okay. I don't even care what comes after that. Okay. <laughs> Why would you want iced coffee if there was a choice? Always warm for me. But go ahead. What, what was the follow up? I mean, well, you know, I mean, if if you were to choose one of those to give to someone that you wanted to make a positive impression on, oh, obviously we're going to go with warm, even though the science is debatable and the uh, replication crisis has reached this space as well as, as all the others. The concept of embodied cognition suggests. And there's some evidence for this, I think, especially in the elaboration likelihood model. When we don't have anything else to go on and we are forced to use simple cues, simple cues can influence the network of assumptions and feelings and motivations we we have. So in that state, a warm cup of coffee might make some people go, oh, this is a warm situation. This is a warm person. This is a warm thing happening. Now, debatable. We need more science. But. Going on what I know, warm cup of coffee. As always, there you go. Second question. Would you be able to tell if I'm wearing gray Crocs with green socks or pink Crocs with white socks in an overexposed picture? Let me think. How old am I? (laughs) (laughs) White Crocs. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can tell you that when I look at it, I, I see green socks. So okay. whatever, and, and that's, and we can get into why that is because it has to do with how old you might be. <laughs> well, and that was, I mean, it's a fascinating part of the book and definitely we want to go there, but this is a speed round. Now, sometimes those mm-hmm. speed rounds don't end up being speedy, but in, in, <laughs> you right. know, just that take. Cool, cool. Mr. Hulan. Okay. Uh, third speed round question. Are knowledge and belief basically the same thing? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I do like that Perfect. this is being a scene round because all of these are, are based on like some interesting stuff. All right. I mean, we'll get into it. But we'll like, get uh, into you it. can you can believe things that ain't so. Yes. Uh-huh. So knowledge and belief. But that being said, if we start talking about it, we're joining a 2000 plus year old conversation that has actually led people to go live in the woods and avoid ever talking about anything ever again. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just so, get so, ready. So listeners, you know, prepare to sell your house and to move away and to do all of these things after this conversation. Okay. Last question. Providing high quality, rational facts and figures supporting your side of an argument. is probably the best way to change someone's mind. Yes or no. Context dependent. Uh, <laughs> if you're in a good faith environment where you, there are social norms in place, where you could accrue uh, social rewards for engaging in that manner, great place to do that. If you're in pretty much any other situation, you need to focus on the person's processing because literally the conclusion is the conclusion of their processing. And you're in, you'll end up, and I, I did not use this phrase in, the, in my book, although it was in the book until I edited it out. You're basically attempting to uh, talk to somebody by going up the wrong end of their uh, thinking system uh, <laughs> by going, starting with the end and going trying to get to the beginning. Better to start at the beginning, which means focus on processing, and we can get into why that's a thing. Oh, fantastic. Well, obviously, we are 
talking about uh, with with David here about uh, his new book, How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion and Persuasion. And and by the way, I, I just have to say, you can tell that you have some journalistic background in this book because it is just a <laughs> yeah. well yeah. written. It's this book that pulls you in. I was reading it, and, and again, Tim and I get to read. It's you do too, right? You get to read a mm-hmm. lot of books as a podcaster. They get sent to you all the time, mm-hmm. and and sometimes it's a it's it's just you have to force yourself to read through some of these mm-hmm. books, even though the information in them is fantastic. Not your book. Your book was just like I was I oh, I was fantastic. I was reading it, and I'm like realizing it's midnight. What the hell am I doing? I oh, need wow. to go to bed. <laughs> this, so, okay. I mean, yeah, I I. My career before I got into You Are Not So Smart was I was a, you know, on the ground journalist and my, the books that I loved and the writers I loved were people who wrote in this sort of the literary journalism style, not all the way over in like Gonzo, but they, they still had a literary style. And one of my good friends, Will Store, writes in that oh, style yeah. and he was starting to put out books in that style. And I was like, okay, I think there's permission to do this in science communication now. Um, of course, there's a great, uh, John Ronson and, and I, uh, John Jeremiah Sullivan is one of those journalists that I've loved and all of his stuff is just, let, let's get right down in there. I will tell you what I was thinking and feeling, but we will, I'll also tell you everything I saw and felt. I just felt like there wasn't a lot of that in psychology type books, especially in the ones that sort of have a, a thesis. And I also didn't want to have a thesis. <laughs> like I did not want to write a book where I was like, did you know, here's a thing. And here's the phrase I came up with and that we eventually get to that. And I, and the whole book would just be me trying to prove that my phrase was cool and right and, 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 and that you could use it in your <laughs> business talks for the next 20 years. Uh huh. I started this book th- not knowing the answer to these questions. I just wanted to know the answer to these questions. And I was, my, I had a great editor, a, a series of editors, one editor in particular, um, both Nikki Papadopoulos and Trish Daly, these two editors, they, they both told me push the, you were, you were permitted to put the narratives front and center. And you're permitted to have an arc where that doesn't start with an authoritative voice, but it ends with an authoritative yeah. voice. And that changed everything for me. And I feel like I, I like, cause you know, you my first two books are, I mean, they were from a different era of science writing, pop science writing, where the, all of the books were kind of just Wikipedia pages with jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do that anymore. I, I, so I have a, a, this, I feel it's really good to hear this feedback because that's what I was going for in this book. I wanted you to be there with me and, and experience the, the unfolding yeah. of the, of the mystery. Well, you're telling me stories. The, the, yeah. Yeah. The, the cobalt blue sky or <laughs> sweating your ass off at a barbecue <laughs> on the boat is like, uh, those things just made it so real, you know, so experiential. And it was real for me because I mean, did it. Ha- halfway through the, the book, you can feel, I hope you feel what I felt, which was like, <sighs> oh, my God, I don't know if I'm going to figure this out. I don't know if it's figure outable. Yeah. And and I wanted you to be there in that, in that with, with me and all of that. No, we were we were we were there. Absolutely. <laughs> OK, but why? So uh, the book is there is a certain aspect of persuasion. You titled mm-hmm. the book. How minds change. Mm-hmm. Could it have been how to change minds? I remember talking to Simon uh, Sinek about this. Showed him a little bit of the manuscript a while back. We met through a very bizarre series of circumstances where the U.S. government wanted help with persuasion techniques following the insurrection, and uh, they asked both he and I to consult very briefly. And um, I was showed him some of the manuscript, and he was like, "You should change the name of the book to How to Change Minds." I was like, "I don't want that to be the name of the book because <laughs> right. the the idea of the book is I wanted to understand, 
I had witnessed the, the, the shift in, in opinions on same-sex marriage in the United States, shift in attitudes. And I was thinking about all sorts of moments throughout the history of the United States. And then afterward, uh, looking at the history of this all around the world, it looked like punctuated equilibrium, right? Mm. Where you, for anyone who's not familiar with that, in evolution, a species, there would be these long periods of time, millennia of almost no change, very, very tiny change. And then huge moments of massive shifts in, in species wide, uh, body types and ecological, like, uh, the flow of who is on top, who's on bottom. All these things can change very quickly. And then it will go back to a status quo for long periods of time. I was noticing that in social domains where you would have the status quo that seemed to be pretty solid and then in a 10 or 12 year stretch, massive shift and then sort of change. I was as someone who writes about psychology is very fascinated with neuroscience and how brains make sense of things and make their minds in general. I was like, how could you could take a person from after that, put them in a time machine and put them before that. If they met, they would probably argue the way people argue online about everything. <laughs> so what happened in their brain? To right. what do you, what does that phrase change your mind mean? Like, like when we, and I started to discover some cultures don't even use this phrase. If you ask a thousand scientists, they will, you'll get roughly 800 different answers. If you ask us, uh, I, I remember asking, um, Jim Alcock, who studies belief and he studied belief for 45 years at the time that I interviewed him. And it, uh, I asked him like, Hey, uh, so just, you know, a simple, this is like old journalism, uh, trick where you just say, pretend I'm five years old. I say, hey, what's a belief? Uh, what would you say to that? And I remember he just leaned back in his chair and went, oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> I, I felt my stomach drop. I, I was like, oh, oh, yeah. you can't just tell me what a belief is, but you've been studying belief for 45 years. And he said, that's why I can't just tell you what it is. It's, that's why it's complicated. And I that was very early in the process. And I started to feel like, oh, this is going to be if I really want to do a book about this, it's going to take a lot more than just running around and, and translating research papers. It's going to be at the very frontier of something. And that's what ended up happening. That's why I ended up spending time with activists and, and former people who've been in cults and stuff like that to try to get experiences that I could bring to scientists and say, could you help me pick this apart best you can? And we can move that way through the book. So that's a, uh, yeah, I don't, that's a very long winded. Can you believe this uh, kind of thing? But that's why it, where it comes from. But the book actually does, I think, address that question. It's not, it's how minds change. It's not about, yeah, there's, there's pieces in there about how you can influence that and persuade people. But the real essence is this understanding these models and understanding the process that go that happens in our brain the neuroscience of all of this as to you know how our minds change and mm -hmm. and within that you have a lot of models that you talk about you, you you bring up different models within there and there's a lot of overlap in some of those mm -hmm. could you just you know for our listeners and not to because this could we could spend the entire time on this but you know boil down the essence of what you found on how minds change and what those models say Kind of sure. the, the big p picture piece. So the though this isn't explicitly stated in the book really in any way, and it's not doesn't have uh, sections in this way. The format is it builds up from how minds are made, how those minds change, which is usually through learning and and experience, and uh, then coming across things that question your previous experiences and your previous learning moments of dissonance, and then. Persuasion, which is can come in many forms. Persuasion can be a 
through learning or it could be through a pointed attempt from another party to uh, say, I would like you to see if you can see things differently. In that sense, there are hundreds of mental constructs that can be used to describe what is a mind. If I'm asking, so, you know, you know, the beginning you need to say, well, what is a mind, which unfortunately can get into that, oh, got to go live in the woods territory. Because, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, <laughs> you know, you, if you've picked up a philosophy text on anything, uh, like what is a cloud, really? And uh, you can end up, oh, this is just cha- this is just book one of 300 on water clouds, philosophically <laughs> speaking. So I but you were ready to, to go there. You were ready to go I, there. Yeah, <laughs> I, would, I, I have no problem writing, writing or reading stuff like that, but I don't think you will want to pick that up in the airport. Uh, <laughs> so, so I tried to boil it down to beliefs, attitudes, and values. Beliefs being information that's been encoded in the brain in some way that carries along with it an estimation of or a feeling of certainty. Uh, a lot of certainty, it's true. Not so much certainty, it's false. But you hold it as information either way. It's a belief either way. And then there's a you can believe it is true or believe it is not true. Attitudes are your valenced estimations of things. So uh, how you feel about apple pie, how you feel about roadkill, that's an attitude. And uh, But also you can apply those attitudes to politics or concepts, abstractions. And then values, where you think uh, where you think we should be putting our, our, our effort, our resources, what should be high on that list, low on that list. All of these things play together. All these things depend on each other. A change in one changes the other two. A change in two changes the one and so on. In the book, we go from how that's formed, how that changes, and then how that scales up to social change, Mm -hmm. how minds change minds in ways that causes cascades across nations or institutions or whatever. There are this whole world was in the early days of psychology before neuroscience really was a thing, just a huge mess, like just one study would give you one set of results. Another study would give you a different set of results. You tweak a variable here and there, and it feels like, well, we haven't learned anything. I was very lucky to spend time with Richard Petty, and his research partner uh, has, has passed away before we were able to start the book, uh, Cassiopo. He's Petty, uh, the Petty and Cassiopo created the elaboration likelihood model. And their story ended up being great because they're the ones who sorted everything out. But they sorted it out not because they were trying to find some sort of a be- beautiful mind, essential truth of things. But that's what happened because they were just trying to pass their tests. <laughs> they Taking wanted, all this disparate information and putting yeah. some semblance of order around um, it. Yeah. To briefly set up why this is a th- that's true, uh, follow it, the propaganda became the hot new thing in World War II uh, thanks to the Nazis making a lot of propaganda. And they put a lot of money into their propaganda and probably at gunpoint or, you know, suspicion of at gunpoint, some of the great directors and, and filmmakers of Germany were employed to make this propaganda. And oddly enough, it works so well that when we think of Nazis today, we tend to think of the images they produced in those films back then, those giant hordes of Nazis with the person at the, fr- at the front of the rally. And then they go off and do things like like that didn't really happen that like that very often. If it did happen like that, not at that scale, or it did, wasn't as pretty, at least it wasn't as organized as it looks. Propaganda worked though, because if you make a sci-fi movie with with space Nazis, that's what you make them look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. If you watch a, yeah. a Indiana Jones movie, that's what the Nazis look like, right? So, probably that propaganda formed what we think of them. Well, the United States wanted to c- combat this, but they also didn't want to make propaganda. They didn't want to be like the Nazis, understandably. Um, but they also wanted to change some 
public opinions that were going into World War II. One of which, well, the biggest one I think was that most Americans believed that the war would be over in like two months. Mm-hmm. And um, then there was another thing that was happening in public opinion where they thought that the uh, the British weren't doing their part and the Americans were just going to come in there and like pick up their slack. So the United States military, the United States government was worried that whenever we had we had we had millions of people going into the service and these people never held a gun. They were, they were living these pastoral lives. When bloodshed began, they would probably morale would probably plummet. And so they wanted to set them up with like, let's get rid of some of these opinions that they they have first. That way it'll be easier to transition into a war force that, that understands what they're up against and also understands, uh, that their ally, the allies are doing a really, really help. Or do, we're helping them do things, but they're doing an incredible job right now fighting back this thing they're, they're dealing with. So anyway, they, they created these, these series of films called Why We Fight. Frank Capra, the director, mm-hmm. helped make them. Disney did the animation. And then they brought in some social scientists to gauge how well they worked. And they figured out that they did help, cha- they did change people's beliefs, but they did not change their opinions. Whatever opinion they had going in, same opinion coming out, even though they did learn, oh, I didn't know that. Or, oh, really? Thank you for teaching me this. And so they learned you could update a person's beliefs, but not update their opinion. And there was a word floating around here that we use today, attitudes, that just wasn't being used during this period of time. Uh, it was being used, but it was being used with everything else. Belief, attitude, opinion, value, notion. <laughs> the, there were a dozen words and they were interchangeable, which is no good in science. We need some sort of categorical yeah. mm-hmm. way of, of making sense of things. So we started thinking of the mind, this thing generated by the brain, as a collection of mental constructs and we could focus on one mental construct, one mental construct at a time. And then attitudes, we pull that out of it. And it turns out attitudes seem to have more impact on behavior, more impact on cognition than we thought they did much more than we thought beliefs did. And so the Yale attitude change project came out of that. And out of that research led to all this research that was, that showed this, 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 you change the speaker, you get a different thing. You change the context, you get a different thing. You change what time of day we do it, you get a different thing. You let somebody eat some food before we talk to them, you get a different thing. Change the food from hot dog to pizza, different thing. It was impossible to actually get a degree in this aspect of psychology with through just straight memorization. I mean, I mean except, I mean, you had to, that, I'm, I'm saying that incorrectly, you had to straight memorize the results of every study to get a degree. And that's nuts. The idea of having a ground truth to all of these things, to having some sort of how do I understand what connects all of these things was not available. So you just had to memorize it. So that's what Petty and Cassiopo did. They took a they rented a house off of campus, painted an entire room in blackboard paint and then wrote every study in the room and the results of each study and then tried to group them up just to pass their exams. And when they did that, they noticed a pattern by by writing it out that way. They they were like, oh, wait, I, it looks like. And then that's how they developed the elaboration likelihood model. So my long winded setup to that. Here's the short version of what the model is. I like to think of it like this. Elaboration is the reason elaboration is even a, a word in psychology is because before this, they, this, the assumption was persuasion was the result of learning and a person just wasn't being taught well. So you like, you want somebody to use a seatbelt and they're like, I don't want to. You, you like, well, 
the more you use seatbelts, the more likely blah, 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 blah. And then the assumption was if you got that message across, the person would be like, oh, thanks. Oh, yeah. I'm going to wear yeah, this. Yeah. Done. Yeah. <laughs> so then, and that was the idea with everything. Like, uh, even, even advertising, like at this time, oddly enough, if you were talking to a modern scientist, you'd be asking, how do I uh, dissuade someone from smoking? But during this period of time, they were asking scientists, <laughs> how could I persuade someone to start smoking or stay smoking or smoke my cigarette? And they're like, well, you just have to tell them your cigarette's better and you just have to show them how good it is because the idea was learning. It turns out learning is it's not the active ingredient in the application of, of this sort of treatment, as, as, as we'd say, in, the, in their domain. It's elaboration. So how is elaboration different from learning? Let's say you see uh, the movie Jaws first, and then you see Alien, and you want to write a very quick review, or you want to tell somebody, you only have a minute to tell them about it. You would say, it's like uh, uh, Alien is kind of like Jaws in space. Yeah. That's a, an example of, sort of something in the domain of elaboration, where I'm taking something I already am familiar with and using it to make sense of something new. Uh, it's very close to assimilation, which we can get to, uh, later. The, it's also, you could also look at it like if I'm trying to sell you, this is how Petty told me. If you're trying to sell someone soap and you say it'll make you smell like flowers, some people will hear that message, learn it perfectly and go, no, thank you. Cause I don't want to smell like flowers because in this could go way all the way down to neurons, but it, it might go back to a childhood event. It may go to how the people in their neighborhood think of them. It may go to, an experience they had with a flower when they were, when they were uh, seven and a bee came out of it and stung them in, in the nose. Who it's, it's particular to the individual and it, and it crosses many domains. That's elaboration. It's taking something of yourself, adding it to the message and getting a, a, a totally different thing at the end. Another person on the other hand would hear that message and go, Oh, I can't wait to have your flower. So that's what I want. I want to smell like flowers. And maybe their mom was a florist when they were a kid. So elaboration is that a person must elaborate. And the, the result of the elaboration is sort of a positive affect comes out of it. And then the, the L is the likelihood. And likelihood is determined by all sorts of things. Mainly it's determined by how easy it is for you in the moment to engage in elaboration, which is could be modulated by, sorry, I don't have time for this, or I have other things that are more important to worry about, or there's a lot of distractions in the room. And then there's also how important is this topic to you? How, how, how closely does it connect to your values? Mm-hmm. And all of this, like anything in science, once you hear it, you're like, yeah, of course, but you can imagine <laughs> 50 years of scientists working on this every day. And this wasn't obvious. And the, the result of that is the elaboration livelihood model that says, given the, the, the who's speaking, where they're speaking, what the message is and who the audience is, a person may go into the central route or the peripheral route. The central route you will care a whole lot about the actual, like, like the strength of the arguments and the peripheral route. You will care much less about that. You'll only care about simple cues. Is the speaker attractive? Does the speaker seem trustworthy? Uh, is this something that comports with the, the, uh, the values of my social group and so on? The, the simple cues that almost have nothing to do with the message itself. Depending on how the message is presented, you'll either go on central or peripheral. And on central versus peripheral, things that in, in one message would make you go, I am persuaded, will not make you feel that way in the other and vice versa. So that's the that is almost as short as I can make that uh, without asking you. Just read the damn book. <laughs> OK. We are going to pause here and do one of the mini grooving sessions that we talked about at the beginning. And we'll talk a little bit about what we've heard so far. 
Yeah, man, there's a lot to process here already. But, Kurt, where do you think we should get started? Well, you know, I think the the interesting piece, and, and this, I think, is throughout the entire conversation, right, is the idea that changing minds, changing beliefs is not about giving people more and more accurate information, that that isn't what changes people's beliefs or minds, that it is much more than that. And that there's a whole different process. So this idea that if we just give people the information and we we disprove their their facts and replace them with our facts, that they'll then magically change. Well, it doesn't really pan out. Right. And this is the big misconception that we all believe that we have changed. Maybe it's because we believe that we've changed our minds because we came into some new fact. But that wasn't really the case. It probably happened because we had something like a conversation with someone that seemed to be persuasive in a way that wasn't necessarily about the facts, but the way that we connected with them. So we have to get beyond this misconception. That's the first thing that more facts don't it just don't work. They don't change minds, period. The, the other piece, Tim, and I, I want to get your thoughts on this, is this idea that there's this conceptual difference between beliefs, opinions, and attitudes. I love this because it reminds me of uh, the difference between the way we look at risk and uncertainty. If we define risk and uncertainty, they're very different. Uncertainty just means uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen. Risk means we have a pretty good feeling of what's going to happen. But there's, we know that there's some risk involved. There's some, there's, there's just a, a degree of lack of confidence in, in something. But yet we feel them, like our gut says, feeling risk and feeling uncertainty are about the same thing. And I think that that reminds me of beliefs, opinions, and attitudes. They are really very different, but we feel them on the same level. Like our gut says, oh yeah, beliefs, opinions, attitudes, so what? But the important thing here that David points out is that it's attitudes that really has the biggest impact on changing our beliefs, right? Yeah, and, and, and I'll quote him here. And it turns out attitudes seem to have more impact on behavior, more impact on cognition than we thought they did, and much more than we thought beliefs did, which is a really interesting concept, particularly as you talk about this, that, again, if you would have asked me prior to this conversation or prior to reading his book, because he talks about this in the book as well, this idea that, Oh, beliefs and opinions and attitudes are vastly different. And I would go, yeah, they're, they're different. I get it, but not that different, right? They're not yeah. going to be that different. And if I am trying to change somebody's behaviors, don't I want to go after their beliefs? I mean, that would be the piece. If I can change their beliefs, then I'm going to get them to change their behavior. But that's not what the evidence looks, looks like, right? That doesn't, it's not where the evidence is pointing. And I love this idea that, hey, when we think about this, that instead of thinking about the beliefs, it's like, let's get them thinking about their attitudes. How are you feeling about something, you know? Yeah. Uh, what did you think about that elaboration likelihood model? Oh, that was pretty cool. Now, Richard Petty um, and Cassio Bo, the fantastic people and, and you Great know, researchers. we, yeah. yeah, and we, we partner uh, with Andy Luttrell of Opinion Sciences, who Richard Petty was his mentor. And so, yeah. we, you know, get a little bit more insight. And so that's really cool stuff. But the elaboration likelihood model I thought was really cool. It, it's the, the story behind it is even cooler, right? It's this, 
you know, they weren't searching for this grand kind of thing. No. They were just trying no. to put semblance to order of disparate, you know, findings because they're all over the board just so they could pass their test. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and the finding is in some ways, of course, like many things in in psychology, I think we come to them in the rear when we look at them in the rearview mirror, we go, well, that's kind of intuitive. Right. That elaboration is such a key uh, you know, in, in, on what we hear or we read, making it our own and applying it, like elaboration is a really important part of actually integrating it into who we are. Right. It's taking the concept that you're talking about, but then, you know, melding it and figuring out how are you elaborating on this. So again, the Jaws in space example, I thought that was just <laughs> fascinating. This idea of, all right. So when you think about that, right, you're taking a concept, Jaws, this movie, and now you're elaborating on it, putting Jaws, the movie, in space, which makes you think about things in a different way. And it puts a right. different – it's 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 like taking a look at an object, and you've only looked at it from one, one side. And yeah. all of a sudden, you get to either move around that object or the object is moved, and you get to see it from a different perspective. And that different perspective, I think – helps us understand and and again from that idea of changing it's like oh i've only seen this from its front or its side before and now i get to see this larger picture and you know you have assumptions about what it looks like behind there but those assumptions could be way off and that i think is really key it reminded me of our conversation with john sweeney when the great uh improv guy right and like this whole idea of Introducing new ideas actually gives us ways of thinking about the original ideas in a new fashion and a new perspective that can enhance our overall learning of what that original idea was. Which is exactly what you're trying to do if you're trying to change somebody's mind, right? <laughs> it's like it, you, exactly. it's this idea that, right. all right, we know that, as he was said, learning is not the active ingredient. Yeah. It's about yeah. the application of those pieces in your mind. So agreed. Okay. Let's get back into the conversation with David, where we kind of take a different tact and start talking a little bit about ethics. You know, there's a, the, we love uh, discussing ethics and the ethical implications of this has been from Cialdini to Thaler to everybody oh, yeah, that we yeah, talked yeah. to, you know, the Titans. Yeah. And you, uh, you really emphasize this question of why, when, when thinking about changing a mind to being persuasive, why do I want to change this person's mind? And I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit on the importance of that question and how you came to actually apply it in, in the book. Yeah, wow. It emerged over time. And I say in the introduction, you know, like I changed my mind several times. In, in, a, in a way, there's a, part of the book is is a memoir of, how I changed my mind about all of this. In the early days of You Are Not So Smart, when I first was being invited to lectures, I, in the Q&A, people would say things like, hey, my dad is a birther. Not a, it's a birther. Yeah. At the time it was, uh, Obama, he thinks Obama oh, yeah. was, was born here or at the extremes, you know, he thinks Obama is a lizard man, you know, whatever it was. And I, they would ask like, how, what do I do to change his mind? And I remember at the time just saying, you can't. Yeah. And I, I was so in the we are irrational and we are um, flawed reasoners state of mind in those early days of this domain in psychology that that's the sort of 
advice I would give. And I, re- I'm deeply ashamed about that. I regret it a lot. I had said that in the, in the early days. The, but it was part of your journey. I mean, right. This is sure this is uh, where but, you were, but, but, but I think I, I, it was also part of everybody's. I mean, there was a lot where it's like, Oh, you give them more facts. No, well then they're going to have reactants and they're going to actually mm-hmm. get further into the, this belief that you don't want them to have. So right, right, it, right. Yeah. I was a big proponent of the backfire effect at the time. And we now know a lot more about the backfire effect and, and the, and it's actually sort of an edge case. And so I just never was satisfied with that. And I started to see those, the vast changes in the United States when it came to attitudes towards same sex marriage, toward LGBTQ issues in general. And I was like, you know, I, I was, I, what happened was I had Hugo Mercier on, on my podcast and he wrote, he and Dan Sperber wrote the incredible book, The Enigma of Reason, which it, you like you, I really, really want everybody on earth to read that book. That is an incredibly important book. And it reframed everything in the world of biases, fallacies, and heuristics that I've been writing about for years. And Mercier sort of hurtled out of the darkness and grabbed me by the lapels and said, come here, David McGraney. I, I'm very happy that you're a science communicator who is popularizing the things we, 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 we research, but you need to see that we've like Mercy and Sperber have, we've discovered a, a different way of framing this. And it's called the interactionist model. And the interactionist model posits that we have two cognitive mechanisms for, uh, when it comes to argumentation, deliberation, persuasion, and so on. One is for the purpose of producing propositions and arguments. And the other is for evaluating. And the evaluation process is, was evolved to take place in a group setting. The idea is individuals will offload a very biased and lazy argumentative frame, and then that will be added to a mix for which every all of us together will then evaluate and then come to a group decision about what to do as far as goals or interpretations and so on. On the obviously what we were experiencing, what I was writing about for years and, and doing lectures about for years was that most of what we were doing online at the, in the early days and even now is producing arguments and then just kind of walking away, just throwing them on a big pile. And if you look at it from the interactionist model, it's one set of cognitive mechanisms are producing arguments and then walking away. And the evaluation process is less emphasized on social media. Uh, it's not that we aren't doing it on social media. It's just that it's not really set up to emphasize that side of the equation as much as the other. And a lot of the research that is fun to write about in this domain was uh, conducted on individuals, but then gathered together as a group as if those individuals had been in a group, but really they're just a group of individuals. <laughs> it's just a, yeah. it's, a, it's people acting alone grouped together mm. instead of a people acting together and then studied as a, as a group in that way. And so a lot of the things that you get out of uh, the reasoning process are those that seem flawed and seem very, very irrational you don't get the same results when you allow people just to talk with one another as they're producing their arguments and evaluating them. So the I started to feel myself changing there right off the bat and wanted to understand more about it. And I was getting all this um, information about how persuasion works. And I was starting to play around with some of it. I, I had met with the people in street epistemology and in deep canvassing, motivational interviewing, uh, smart politics and all these other domains that actively persuade people to update their priors, change their attitudes, their values, and so on. And some of them 
most all of them have a stepwise method. And to my surprise, their stepwise method, uh, methods, when you compare and contrast them, the steps are almost the same and almost in the same order, even though they had never met each other. Yeah. Even though many of them had never looked at any of this, any science at all. They just done a lot of thousands of conversations in A-B testing. And it seemed to me like, oh, they're discovering the ground truth of this. Uh, it's sort of like if you build an airplane on one side of the planet without working with the other people trying to build an airplane on the other. I'm talking about the first airplane. <laughs> uh, it ends up looking the same because physics is the same and you have to make airplanes kind of look the same. Persuasion is like that, too. Persuasion that techniques that work are going to end up looking the same because the brains produce and evaluate arguments the same way, no matter what culture they're within. So this here I am getting very close to answering your question now. Uh, <laughs> here's what I figured out about how I had all these steps. And they just sort of start with like, here's how you change somebody's mind. I had uh, like a lot of, I think, like a lot of us who think we're on the right side of whatever we think we're on the right side of. I didn't approach it from an ethical or moral standpoint because I just thought I have the ethical and morals high ground. But it, you learn once you get very deep into this uh, subject matter, that's sort of the first thing you should question about yourself. Like, you should be open to changing your own mind. You should be open to collaborating with others to discover why we disagree on a topic if we do. Not me try to win you tr and me try to make you lose. I need to understand why is it that we feel differently at all or see differently at all? What is up with their differing perspectives? And there's this one moment in the book that really sort of shoved this forward for me. And if you don't mind, I'll tell the story. It's, uh, I'll, I'll keep it brief. The story of Jethan? The story of Jethan, yeah. Jethan, yes. Yeah. I was invited the, to talk to the spokesperson for the Flat Earther community, uh, Mark Sargent, in Sweden. Uh, I'd done an episode about Behind the Curve. I, they, I had sort of softly consulted on that documentary by just by they were, they were listeners to the, about my podcast, and they used some of the um, guests I had on the show in, in their documentary. I learned on the back channel that I was in the credits for like, like, thank you to David McCraney. I was like, why are they thanking me? And so I, I reached out to them and they said, oh, we're just big fans. And we, we sort of cribbed a couple of your things, but I didn't ever have a problem with that because it's just science. And anybody, if I show it to you, it's just it's the same science I'm looking at. You can look at too. And I was like, come on the show and talk about it. So they came on the show. It was great. It was an episode about motivated reasoning and uh, flat earthers and conspiratorial thinking. And then I was invited to go talk in Sweden with the uh, spokesperson of the Flat Earthers at the time, Mark Sargent. To get ready for that, I learned, I spent time with people. I'd already interviewed them, but I went back to people at Street Epistemology and Deep Canvassing and everything and sort of got a really good idea of how I'm going to use it. And I was invited to this retreat in Canada where we all gave very short lectures. And I gave them a lecture about some of the stuff I'm talking about, but it was earlier in the process. And I mentioned it. there are these steps. I know the steps and it's I can't do them here in front of you. But it's if you want to see a demonstration or something later or we talk about it, that's fine. One of the people at, the, at this uh, retreat, uh, Jathan, Jathan Reichel, he was in the sort of the startup world, uh, a tech person. That's who most people were in this thing. And we just hit it off. It was he was a cool dude. And we had a lot of like campfire conversations. And it was just it was one of those like um, summer camp for adults kind of retreat thing. And he was like. In the cafeteria at, at uh, dinner one night, he said, I would like to see the technique demonstrated. And a lot of other people in the room were like, oh, yeah, I want to see that, too. And I was like, sure. OK, let's sit down. So uh, the way and this is mostly deep cam, uh, mostly street epistemology with a little bit of everything else mixed in. And I had the steps written out on a, on a in my notebook. 
And I said, okay, if we're going to do this, let's pick something that you believe or you feel very strongly that guides your day-to-day thinking and feeling and, and behaving. That's the best way to do it. And he said, how about we go with my belief in God? And of course, yeah, I, I, I see, an icy yeah. chill went through my veins. I don't, I was like, oh, that's the big, uh, the biggest one really for, for most people. Are you sure you want to do this? And he said, yeah. So I sat down at a table in this room, this all wooden room. I remember that for some reason. The, the table's wood, the walls are wood, the floor's wood. Hmm. And I said, uh, okay, let's start. Uh, where are you sort of on the scale from like zero to 100, like, you know, or zero to 10 or whatever, like zero to 100? Where are you? How much do you believe in, in God? And he said, you know, he's some days high, sometimes low, 50-50 sometimes, 70-80 sometimes. At the time, he was pretty high. And I was like, well, um, were you always up there? Because that's how the technique works. Like, was there a time where you weren't at that level? And if so, what got you to that level? He said, oh, yeah, I used to be, you know, a zero. I was like, well, how did this change for you? And he said, well, I only tell this story once a year, but this seems like the time to tell it. And so here's my shortened version of the story he told me. He went to the Holy Land in an attempt to become an atheist. He had reached a point in his life, like a lot of people, where he had become sort of the militant, angry, reject my upbringing sort of state in his life. He had an opportunity to go to the Holy Land, and he did so. And he went through a bunch of holy sites and spoke to a lot of experts, uh, holy leaders often, and was getting educated. And But he also was getting somewhat scammed at, at different points along his journey, and it was starting to work. He was starting to feel like I have successfully eliminated my belief in God, mainly because there's a lot of people trying to scam me out of my money. And he was at a uh, holy site near the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, and he was walking around just kind of in observing the the sun going up, down and the the light changing and the and the the stonework and the the uh, people doing rituals around him, and he's just kind of enjoying it and taking it in. And thinking that probably I'm at the point now where I'm ready to go home uh, and say I have achieved my goal. And he heard a uh, whimpering and he walked toward the sound. And in an alcove of this building was a young woman lying in her uh, in her vomit and her tears. And she was clearly not doing all right. And he rushed to her and she had uh, a suicide note. He showed me this at some point because uh, he has it. He still has it. Uh, and it's stained uh, with her tears. And uh, she, he didn't know what to do. Honestly, he's like, uh, he, he's not great with the language and she's clearly in distress and there was no one nearby at that moment. So he scooped her up and he ran through these cobblestone streets until he found a taxi, got in the taxi, got her to a hospital uh, and they pumped her stomach and the family arrived and they saved, they saved her life. And then he learned it was, you know, she was in a sort of Romeo and Juliet situation, uh, but they were in different religious spheres and she couldn't marry the person she wanted to. And she had attempted to take her life. So he, he, he became good friends with her, good friends with the family. And they ended up making him a meal. Uh, he had, she had a notebook on, on her, on her body that he had, um, found the numbers. He just went through the numbers one at a time until he could get the family to come out there. So he explained all this to me and he said something along the lines of whatever God means to other people, that's what it means to me. Whatever happened there, like that, that was divine. I'm okay with having my own definition of that, but it surely happened there. And that gave me my own spirituality that's unique to me, unique to my experience. But I do feel like uh, if I was rejecting something, it wasn't that. 
And that, mm-hmm. that is what I've carried with me since then. Uh, this is what it means to be more than this is the essential humanness that I experienced. And I feel like that's divine. So I'm hearing all this. I'm feeling all of this. And at this point, everyone there has, has is now in a circle around us. And I remember David Boyle sitting back at that sort of at that moment of there was this you know, break and just I could feel the sigh in the room of like, okay, here we are. And I asked Jathan, I knew I, I had the, the steps in front of me and, and I asked Jathan and I, the way I could, came up with asking the question was, okay, I felt very confident actually that I could go through the steps and I could pull a, a lot of his confidence away from this sort of framing it more as like, let's think about how your brain has created this sensation, this feeling, this, this conviction. I said, if I had a, a button under a glass case, like a hinge, and you could open up the, the case and you press the button, you would go from, let's say you're at 70 or 80 right now, you'd shoot down to 10 or possibly zero in your confidence level. Would you press the button? And he took a very long pregnant pause. He, he stroked his beard. He, he took a breath and it was just, it, to me, it felt like, uh, like time has just stopped. I had to, I had to wait for his permission to continue on my timeline for him. So he had to make his decision. And then he soberly looked up at, at all of us and said, no, I would not press the button. And I just felt in that moment very strongly, there was absolutely no good in continuing for me personally. Another person may feel differently, but for me, I felt, why would I do this? Like, what good would it add to the world? What poison would it extract from it? I feel like he gave me more in that story than I could ever, ever give him. And especially uh, what would happen if I took something mm. from him. So I told him that I don't see there's any point in moving forward. And he, then he thanked me and said, what I did get from this was a better understanding of why this is so important to me. And I felt like that was actually good enough. And I also everyone in the room gathered, got something from that. And then we collapsed and had a group of, that's the only time I've ever experienced that in my entire life. We had this big collapse moment of, wow, that really happened to all of us, right? And we were all stronger for it. So I decided at that point, there should be a step zero in all of these things, which is ask yourself why you would do this. Like if you're going to employ these very powerful techniques that you get from a book like this, that you could use in almost any situation for almost any purpose, uh, you should ask yourself, why would you want to change someone's mind? And oftentimes in asking that question, you will change your own mind before you even get started, which may be the actual greater good in all of it. So that's how I came to honestly really fundamentally change how I feel about all of this very late in the process of writing a book about it. Yeah, and it was a really poignant part. You can tell here just from this conversation. I'm sure our listeners get that, too, that there was this element that you could see in in your writing and you and you're talking about it that it did change how you think about this that there was the that epiphany moment that kind of element that said wait i have power that i can change somebody's mind or at least move them to to a little degree with all the knowledge that i have but just that but having that power again you're you know paraphrasing spider-man right with great power <laughs> comes great responsibility and and you need to take that responsibility seriously and you need to look at this as to what why am i doing this what is the what is that ethical component on the back end is it for good as you said am i removing a poison from the earth i love that that perspective and i just think it's really powerful and it's a question that oftentimes i think we skip and so we skip that as you said step zero and i think it's one that we we shouldn't skip Mm -hmm. 
I just I think that's a, a really powerful piece of, of what you're talking about. here. And it ends up being the sort of the, the major thesis, the discovered thesis. In some point in the book, I talk about uh, epiphanies at the scientific level are not the moment you change your mind. It's the moment that you realize your mind is already changed. Mm. That's the epiphany. That's what an epiphany is, scientifically speaking. And for me, the there's a, the greater thing was uh, instead of trying to have debates, because debates have winners and losers and nobody wants to be a loser. And once you frame anything as a debate, we are, we're having that battle with one another. If you get into that space, you lose the, the ability, you lose the, the possibility of having a conversation in which you, you both figure out you're both wrong. Are you both figure out ways that you're right about something that can combine? What you lose is the ability to move up a little. It depends on how, which metaphorical framing you prefer. Sometimes, some people would say the deeper truth or some people would say the greater truth. Either way, the idea is it's the third thing. It's not your view or my view. It's our views com- combined that reveal a different truth that was not available to us until we had the conversation and learn that these all of these techniques actually offer that up. Oddly enough, uh, we don't we don't, might not have time for it. The, the dress helped me see that. But the that's something that you get from a conversation like this. Now, the way I now see it is that's the amazing power of these techniques is that it offers you the, the ability to meet another person with a different perspective instead of overwhelming their perspective with yours or having yours overwhelmed with theirs. A third thing emerges that neither one of you could see until you met. Okay, stopping to groove again here. This stuff, Tim, this stuff is just so fascinating. Oh, yeah. I mean, we tracked off in a very different direction here. And I think talking about ethics and what it means about changing minds is really, really important in all of this, because without a sense of of an ethical grounding, then it's just manipulation. Yeah, which is a really good part. When we think about this, we ask the question, as David says, when we ask the question, why do I want to change somebody's mind? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Even just asking ourselves that question might get us to think about things differently and asking it honestly. I mean, it's it's a really it's a very unvarnished question to ask that you really have to look deep in the mirror and say, why? Why do I want to do this? Yeah. And that, I think, is the hard part about this. Right. And, And the piece that when we talk about ethics all the time, it's really easy to just. You could ask that question, but are you really doing a a deep dive into the real reasons why you're asking that question? Because it's so easy to just stay at the surface level and go, oh, because they that they'll make them better. That will do this thing. And his his entire story that he talks about this. Right. And this idea when he you know, you have the two buttons. Do you want to push one or, you know, you push one and you go back or not? And I thought that was really interesting because it was this epiphany moment for him, right? And with that, I think it's hard for us to get epiphanies, but when we do, they can be really groundbreaking and changing. So Yeah, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. So Oh, yes, you can. It's really hard and it takes a long time. But if you really try hard, you can push it back in there. The other thing that really struck me about this part of the conversation was the, the Sperber and Mercier book about the enigma of reason. Mm, that was so fantastic this idea of how the difference between 
the, the part of our brain that gets involved in proposing the argument is different from the part of our brain that's analyzing the argument. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of songwriting. Like there's sort of that initial proposal of the idea, the, you know, in songwriting, we might call it inspiration. Like what inspires you to write, to create something? And that, that creation process is just about sort of getting some ideas out. But then there's the second part, and that part coalesce, it correlates to the proposal of the argument. But then the analysis or the analyzing of the argument correlates in songwriting to the part where you have to edit and you have yeah. to use craft and you have to think about what words are going to rhyme and does the story make sense. And, and those are two separate things that, yeah. that I think a lot of songwriters miss out on. And I think that we miss out on when we're thinking about developing arguments or analyzing arguments. They're two separate activities. So, so hearing somebody on the street say, I get lonesome too, and going, woo, this is cool, is different than actually sitting down and writing a song. Yes. I get lonesome too. Yes, it is. It's, it's totally <laughs> different. Yes, it is. Oh, no. I mean, it's, it's, you bring up a really interesting part, and it was an interesting conversation with David about this, is this idea, again, if we think about this deeper, if we think about what it is to try to get somebody to change and how that change happens, then we have to take all this into consideration. And this idea, too, that we talked about in this section is this talking with people versus yeah. just kind of contemplating it yourself. Oh, that's another big aspect of this. So. That is central. I love this idea of, of the way that he talked about, like, social media. There's nothing social about it, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's all happening in our brains. Social is actually when we're sitting in a group or we're at a barbecue or a cocktail party. We're actually having a conversation with someone. That's social. Yeah. Uh, it's certainly that idea reinforced the value of being out in the world and talking about things that we think about and are concerned about and believe in. Yeah. Okay. Let's get back into our conversation where we start to explore some of the actual research that shows how we all view the world from our own perspective and that those different perspectives can sometimes both be right. Let's talk about the dress because (laughs) this is fantastic stuff. Okay. So I'm I'm into it. Everybody knows it. Well, everybody everybody knows the dress, but I want to talk about Crocs. That was the, that was the (laughs) other cool part where it's like, all right, the dress was accidental. The Crocs were on purpose. So. All right, so, but, but let's talk a little. We, we need to start with the dress. So can you, for our listeners. The help. dress was such a gift in that everything, like we were talking about all this, these sort of philosophical concepts of what do you get versus a debate versus a conversation, deliberation and argumentation and, and merging perspectives and, and versus I'm right and you're wrong, all these things, wonderful philosophical things. Definitely you can feel your heart swell and bounce around when you talk about them. Uh, but what about the science, right? And I was astounded. I get this gift came along and I was like, Oh, I, I feel like this is the way to help everyone understand this. And, and I'm so happy it happened. I had, um, uh, I met Pascal Wallace and Michael Karlovich because I, the, he sent an email and he was like, Hey, we figured out how the dress was a thing <laughs> and it might be interesting for your show. And when I looked into it, I was like, this isn't just for the show. This is the key I was, I've been looking for. Ah, yeah. Cool. Because for one thing, we all have experienced, we all experience this. And in their research, they developed something that I'll get to this called surf pad, uh, substantial uncertainty within, in the presence of ramified or forked prior assumptions leads to substantial disagreement. That's what And we will put that in the notes so people can <laughs> <see it laughs> read about surf pad. <laughs> so 
this uh, uh Pascal Wallach, I love him. He is he has a sort of feverish Jeff Goldblum with a German accent, mad scientist quality <laughs> to him. And uh and fantastic. His, he's great. Every time I've ever attempted to go through anything with him, he 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 always asks me what he, he asks me these rhetorical questions that he knows I will get wrong because I'm not <laughs> I don't have his level of expertise. And then when I get it wrong, he explains why I'm wrong. He's he's great. And he runs the Fox Lab at NYU, and they have this incredible team up there who studies all manner of fascinating things using something that he is devoted to, which is he feels that social science, psychology in general, needs to have the same sort of framework as something like physics mm. so that we can avoid this replication crisis thing. He wants it to have real standards and the standards of, of scientific understanding akin to like you start with observation and then you classify and taxonify and then you go from that to prediction. And so I use grass as an example in the book where like, you know, we, we observe a lot of different grasses. We draw nice pictures of them as naturalists back in the old days and, and which are those beautiful drawings and paintings they would make. Then you, you associate them with different regions. So you start to be able to predict you go to a new region, you know what kind of grass will be there. And then now you try to understand why is that so? And you create these beautiful taxonomies. Once you know, have better tools, you can have like molecules and cell structures and Krebs cycles and photosynthesis. And you start to really understand a thing. And then the last level is to be able to replicate it, to produce it yourself. We can't do that with grass yet, but uh, one day I'm sure, but we can, we can do that in other places. Like we can create nuclear reactions we we understand nuclear physics to the point where we can make our own nuclear reactions, whether it's in a, a whether it's a, a generator, uh, whether it's a, uh, a to create steam power or something like that, or it's in a bomb. We have the ability to do these things, or it's just in a say an environment where we're just trying to understand uh, nuclear reactions. So. He's like, I want to do that with psychology. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, wow. And, and, he chose the dress as his as his way of getting into that space to create a, a scientific framework for other people to use, to borrow their methods. And I think that's beautiful. But he was able to do that because he just thought the dress was wild and wanted to understand it. So the dress, we've all got to experience this. I have never asked a single person so far about it who did not have a memory of the dress, but I'm sure eventually I will meet somebody. Maybe somebody in the audience has never heard of it, but I feel like everyone remembers this. 2015, Washington Post said it was the argument that broke the internet. Um, it was before QAnon, before uh, COVID, <laughs> before the insurrection, before fake news, alternative fact, before everything, before we entered into the epistemic chaos that we now live within and are familiar with, before confirmation bias was something everybody had heard of, before filter bubbles, before all of this stuff just became part of being a person, the dress was the thing that freaked us all out and said, oh, no, oh no, nothing's real, nothing's true. And that's so good. It's a great way to get into that topic, right? If you don't remember or if you just need to be prompted to, to recall how it all went down, this very nice woman who was going to a wedding took a picture of a dress in a London shop. And she asked her family what they thought of it. And some of them, when they were telling her what they thought of it, uh, revealed that to them it was black and blue and other people saw it as white and gold. And they started having this debate amongst the family and they were like, what is going, what's happening? And then it, that spread eventually to, uh, Buzzfeed and to the internet in general. And then all of us joined in this massive, like crazy experience of 
it's obviously this color or it's obviously the other color. And even celebrities were talking about it. News programs, local news programs in my hometown were closing out their news segments with the dress. It was just a, a, a shared experience of um, this existential dread philosophical quandary that we could not solve. And, and this and this this argument was over a single photograph. It was one photograph, one photograph of one dress. Right. That was and, it. and let's use the word image going forward because it helps with the science. So it's this yeah. image. And it's important that it's the image that we can't agree upon. Yeah. It's and the image is some sort of filtered process of whatever was happening, whatever the real dress is. It was turn, making it into a photograph that was then put on the internet, and we're all looking at this thing that's that's come out of all of that, and we can't agree if it's one color or another. But the thing is, we also can't help but see it the way we see it. Mm-hmm. We have no choice in the matter. It happens to us. We experience it the way we experience it, and there's that's it. But if I experience it my way and you experience it your way and we get into an argument about that and I start thinking that you're crazy or or weird or mistaken and I start getting upset, this is what made Pascal fascinated with it was that there were camps forming. And he was like, what if these camps ended up having like weirder things have happened in human history? What if there ended up being like a politically active camp of people that, <laughs> that started from I see the dress this way and another camp says I see it this way? And this fundamental disagreement led to these sort of warring epistemic tribes. So he wanted to understand why did people see it differently in the first place? And what he he had a lot of research in color science before that and sleep science before that. And he the long story short of what it is, is the more experience you've had with sunlight the or the less experience you've had with sunlight, the different different dress you'll see. The reason for this is when it's when it, when something is overexposed we will inside the brain without our knowledge, we will turn down the exposure a little bit. We'll, as they say in neuroscience, subtract the luminant or subtract the illuminant. And this is useful for, let's say you're looking at a, if you're looking at something in your closet and the light's very low, you still can tell what the color is. The assumption, and this is just speculation, is that in low light environments, it's very useful to be able to see if something's ripe or it's very useful to see blood. You know, you want to be able to see the color of it. If, if it's, so we can turn up, the luminance, we can turn down the luminance. This happens in the processing chain of, of vision. We have no choice. It just happens to us. Usually that happens with our, we can tell if something's overexposed. We, our experiences in that domain, we will subtract the exposure based off the lighting conditions we expect are at play. And this is usually happening in real time in the real world, not with an image. So the, they call this uh, disambiguation. I love that phrase. The color of the object, the illumination of the object is ambiguous. Therefore, we disambiguate it by subtracting the illuminant. In this case, it was clear that it was overexposed, but it wasn't clear if it was overexposed by sunlight or artificial light mm. and our incandescent light. So some people who uh, spend more time in sunlight or they work around windows or they get up very early, they assume unconsciously that it's overexposed by sunlight and they subtract sunlight, which this gets confusing if you if you have an image of the sun in your mind and it's yellow. Sunlights think of more of it as blue sky. So they subtract an, the blue from it. They think it's overexposed in blue, and what you end up with is, is the is the yellow and, and uh, the golden white dress. Other people assume that it's overexposed in incandescent light, which is mostly yellow. They subtract the yellow and you end up with the blue dress, and that's how we end up with two different things. But what's, what's great about this is you have no choice in this, but your life experiences leading up to this determine how you disambiguate it. So different priors, different disambiguations, different conclusion, and you have no choice and you're unaware of the whole thing. And since you're unaware of it and it happens to you, 
it feels like the, it's the raw truth of your perception. How can you question such a thing? And if I, someone disagrees with me, it seems that I can't disagree with my own conclusions, but I can disagree with yours. It's clear to me I'm right and you're wrong. And if we were to argue at that level where I'm trying to show that the way I see things is the only way to see it, the way you see things, the only way you see it is, is incorrect, then we would in the attempt to win that argument, we would both lose out on the ability to feel and discover the actual truth of what's taking place, which is this amazing aspect of the human condition, which is subtracting the illuminant and perception is a subjective virtual landscape of, you know, all these things that are true about the human experience we'd miss out on because we were just pushing so hard to win a debate instead of have this like collaborative understanding of why do we disagree? Yeah. So that's where he was coming from. He um and he felt like there's more meat on the bone. Let's keep going. So to go through that ladder of scientific understanding, he felt like if I if we figured this out, what if we try to recreate it? What if we tried to make a dress from scratch like you would make a nuclear reaction? And so they were like, what to do this? We have to come up with something similar, something uh perfectly perceptually ambiguous, as they put it to me. <laughs> and I will never forget this. Uh, uh, dinner. We I, I met them at a restaurant and uh, they were just chatting. And I have this scene in the book where um, he, they're asking me like uh, they they just shove a picture of a, of an egg on a phone. It's a green egg. And they're like, "What color do you see?" And I was like, uh, it's, "It looks like it's like neon green." He's like, "Ah, damn!" And it, 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 like, everybody sees everybody sees the egg. And I'm like, what's what's going on? And he's like, well, well, you know, first we tried green eggs and ham. We thought some people wouldn't know the story, so they would would see a yellow egg because they expect it to be yellow. I'm like, all right. He's like, yeah, let me ask you, David, what's a perfectly perceptually ambiguous color object? Meaning, what is something that you know what it looks like, but it has no default color? For instance, if I showed you a black and white image of it, you wouldn't know what its true color was. And I remember the first thing I thought was like a hammer, maybe, or a pickup truck or a box <laughs> of tissues, yeah. a bicycle. And he was like, I remember like, what about a firefighter's uh, uniform? Because some countries they're green, some countries they're red. He, and he started taking notes. He's like, interesting. They, they love this stuff so much. But I couldn't get to an answer. And he said, Crocs, just, just screamed it out loud. <laughs> it was one of those like heads turn in the restaurant moments. And I was like, Crocs, like the thing, the the gardening shoe things that people don't always wear gardening, but just wear. And he's like, yeah. He's like, think about it. What color? Think about a croc in your mind. What color is it? And I asked the audience now, like, do the same thing. Like you close your eyes and imagine a croc. What color is it? And they had discovered in their research or their like polling, you get a huge range from that. It's, it doesn't sound, it isn't like one, two, three or four different colors. It's just huge range. Some people see them camouflage. Some people see them, you know, orange, neon, all these things. So they wanted to do that, but they knew they would have to pair the croc with a, an object whose color is sort of the standard. If I gave you a black and white image, you would assume it was a particular color. And they thought crocs would be perfect because you could pair crocs with socks. And most people see socks as white. And the way they, by the way, the re, how did they come up with crocs? They didn't just come up with that out of, out of a bag. Michael Karlovich was a color, a vision researcher who in his um, early days when he was still an undergraduate, he was working in a grow house growing quote unquote plants. And uh, the, they use green lights uh, oftentimes in those places, plants, this is, this is very anthropomorphizing, but put, just for the sake of explaining it, plants don't see green. Uh, it doesn't mess with their rhythms. We see green. You put it, green lights in a grow house and you can just walk around and look at lights all day long, all night long. And, uh, since, and not to get into what, how color vision works, cause that's a whole thing, but I think 
is electromagnetic energy hits things, bounces off, goes in our eyes. We see it. What it absorbs, we don't see. What it reflects, we do absorb. You get the whole idea. So he, there's a guy in the grow house who had Crocs on. In the grow house, you know, they're, they're, he saw them as gray. He goes outside and they're pink. And he's like, oh, I get it because, you know, it's green light. They're absorbing. Uh, they're not reflecting back. Uh, but out here, we've got pink light inside the grow house. There's not pink light. So, okay, I see, I see that it's, it's an illusion that they're gray is because they're not receiving pink light. But then he goes back inside the grow house and they're pink. And he's like, impossible. This is, <laughs> how did this, he's, and he was stunned that, oh, my brain now has a new prior because I understand that it should be a certain color and it's photoshopping it to be that color, but that's not the truth. But in a way it is because my brain is lying to me so that I see the deeper truth of the image that I should be seeing. Wonderful psychedelic moment. And he was like, that's what we should use in our experiments. They pull a bunch of people. Turns out nobody agrees on what Crocs look like. And they're like, that's what we should do. We get a green light. We get pink Crocs. We get green Crocs. We get socks of different colors and we'll just play around. Uh, sock, we'll get white socks and put them in there. So this is what they do. They create this experiment where they get these, you get the pink Crocs, they get the white socks and they get the green light. And they show this to people and they see how they make an image of it. And it's very important. Again, this is the image. It's something that is produced after a process. It's not they're not in the room with it. And so what you end up with is this image that uh, and in, I'm going to have a QR code. I have a QR code in the book so that people can look at these things. But you can Google this now, but I'll have an easy way for people to see these images. What ends up happening is when they add people look at this image, what happens is the green light hits the socks and bounces off. So you get sort of green socks from it. But uh, when it hits the Crocs, no pink light bounces off. So they appear gray. So the truth of the of the actual thing that's taking place in the room is gray Crocs, green socks. But some people look at the image and they see white socks and pink Crocs because what they've done is subtract the overexposure. And in so doing, the brain says, if I subtracted this particular color, that means I probably rendered the crock a different color. Let me add that color back in. And this all happens to you without your knowledge. And here's the crazy thing. Yes, people pretty cleanly fall into two camps on this, just like with the dress. But in this case, it's not their experience with sunlight. It's their experience with socks. <laughs> Older people are more likely to see it one way and younger people are more likely to see it another because Older people have spent more time in a life where most socks were white. And so they assume the socks must be white. And so they see them as white and they adjust the, the image appropriately. Younger people have had more experience with socks of many different colors. They assume that the socks could be green. So they see them as green and they see them the other way. And what I love about that more than anything is not only is the these if we argued with each other, we wouldn't ever understand the deeper truth of it. We'd have to understand we should instead try to collaborate and understand why we disagree to find the deeper truth. The other thing I love about this is what is the truth of this exactly? Because the truth in the room is that it it was the the way the light's reflecting, but the truth of the image with the pixels in it is a different truth. So some people are seeing the truth of the image and some people are seeing the truth behind the image and so which is the truer truth of the two there it, it it there is no such thing both things are happening simultaneously and i need to combine your perspective to my perspective to be able to understand that that's even possible so it ends up being a beautiful illustration of everything that the the thesis of the book is attempting to put forward and i find that to be 
one of the greatest stories of all science. And I love that it happened just within the last few years. What I love about that, too, is, is just as you said, it's it's finding that truth between, you know, is one truth better than the other truth? And, and the elements that you talk about in the book about how people are persuading street epidemiology, the, the all the different things, it is about more of an exploration. Right. It, the, there, mm-hmm. the, the the process that people use in those is asking questions and being we interviewed Kwame Christian. Oh, wow. Who, yeah. you know, is a negotiator and stuff. But he talks about this idea of compassionate curiosity, which yes. when I was reading this, it was, it was the same thing. It was this idea. Yeah, I call of, it cognitive empathy in the book. Same idea. Yeah, it's this idea of just being curious with authenticity. And, and having some compassion with that. Like, I, I want to understand why are you believing this as opposed to trying to instill my belief on you. It's, it's, it, if you're pulling that out. And that is actually where you find people change their minds actually more often than if you were trying to just say, no, these are the facts and you need to push them is get them to explore. It's about metacognition. It's about processing. Like, I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not, advocating for a post-truth society. I'm not saying science is ridiculous. I truly believe in, you know, having empirical standards and evidence-based hypothesis testing leading to theories with uh, supporting evidence and so on. I'm, don't We're not rejecting the scientific no, method here. No, no, no. What I am saying is that we, the scientific method is something conducted by brains, and brains are entities that go through processing chains that are fascinating, complicated, nuanced, and can be messed with in a billion different ways from experience, from persuasion, from learning, from all sort of pedagogical concepts and epistemological things and things with logical <laughs> at the end of them all across the board. The But... When do we disagree? That's what I'm trying to focus on. Moments of disagreement, which are more likely to happen now than ever in human history because we are in each other's pockets and we have all these different ways of interacting with one another. Yeah, we're experiencing this bizarre moment in the arc of our species where, whoa, a lot of people see things differently than me and a lot of people disagree with me. And it's understandable to want to, your knee-jerk reaction is to feel your agency is under threat or that your uh, the validity of your perspective is under threat, and to respond in such a way and sort of move, try to go toward uh, groups of people who will play nice with all of those things and polarize and all the other weird things that come out of that. I'm trying to advocate for in those moments being more curious about why we disagree than being than focusing on my conclusions are superior to yours, even if my conclusions are superior to yours, because you'll get more out of the interaction that way. And there are. The A-B testing that is in all these different communities, like street epistemology and deep canvassing and so on, have also discovered that, whether it is whether you're trying to discuss attitudes or beliefs or values, or you're just trying to have a, a scientific discussion. These are things that are already we already know in, the, in, in domains where argumentation is very valued in science, academia, law and so on. They've created frameworks for argumentation that, that deliver the goods, that extract value from that thing. And so now it's just. I don't know if we all expected this to happen, but it's, it's time for all of us to join that party. And uh, that's what I'm, that's what I'm right. advocating for. Time for another groove break. Okay, this time we're going to focus on the dress and the Crocs. Oh, my. Think about this, that what you see and what I see are not just different in our interpretations of them, but they are imp- Empirically different, Tim. This is, oh, oh, oh. 
are you are you hearing my mind exploding? Mm-hmm. You, Can you hear? You seeing boom? my mind exploding here? My God, this is oh, oh. yeah. Which we didn't really discuss with David, like the underpinning of the entire conversation that two people looking at the same image or reading the same information can see it or interpret it completely differently at a foundational level. Like there has been some neurological work that identifies how brains of conservatives are different from brains of liberals. Honestly, I was kind of skeptical of that when I first read it. But the more current work is really compelling. All of this helps explain why we are unique and why in some situations it's really difficult to see someone else's point of view. This gets into the theory of mind and our ability to put ourselves in other people's shoes. That if we try to think about why somebody else holds a certain point of view or belief, that it is hard for us to really understand that. The dress, the Crocs, they are fundamentally different in how two people see them. Yeah. The information that is presented to us is understood in fundamentally different fashions. We assume that people see things and interpret things in the same way that we do, right? That's kind of the general understanding of theory of mind to a certain degree, right? Yeah. Um, that we can put ourselves in their shoes, but when we do that, that those shoes are the shoes that we're wearing. It's the, it's the green Crocs or the black Crocs. It's not the yellow or pink Crocs, right? And, but that's not the case. We cannot really put ourselves in other people's shoes at least not in every way. Yeah, you bring up an interesting aspect here. And I loved when David said, and I'm just going to quote here, and so which is the truer truth of the two? So when we're looking at the, <laughs> right, when we're looking at the dress Which the is crotch, the truer tr- truth of the two truths. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> both are true truths, which is truer. How do we answer this? You know, yeah, well, it, like when we're we're looking at the dress of the Crocs, you know, how do you answer when we actually look at them differently? And he brings up this this idea of approaching this as a combination of perspectives and trying to get a clearer understanding of things. It, Kurt, you brought up this idea of using compassionate curiosity, Kwame Christians concept, and I loved I loved that. And maybe that's a path to getting to a, a more combined perspective. Yeah, it's amazing to me how often we come back to Kwame's idea of yeah. compassionate curiosity. It's, it's not just in this episode. We've come back oh. to it in many episodes. So it's just such a powerful tool, this compassionate curiosity idea. It really is. And this idea that we can approach our interactions with other people, particularly in situations where we, we may be at odds with them, with this simple idea of being curious, it's so very important in our world today. It's so important to be asking real questions, you know, not fake questions, real questions that you really want to find answers to and for having the compassion to listen and be a part of that experience with other people. It's difficult, but we need to try to understand where they're coming from and why they have the point of view that they hold. Yeah, it is difficult, but it is really important. Okay, let's keep listening to some more stories from David. Well, one of the things, too, so you, you bring up a lot of great pieces. One of the, the chapter titles that you have is The Truth is Tribal. Oh, boy, yeah. And, you know, you took that, I think, from Charlie, who is one of the people that you kind of follow, one of the stories that arcs throughout the entire book. Help us understand just that element that the truth is tribal because you kind of you, you talked about it a little bit as, as we we're going through here. Yeah. I mean, the the essence of this is we evolved in a. Let's imagine, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set this up and then I'll talk about Charlie. Imagine three people on a hill. 
Um, I'm going to use two wonderful metaphors that I love. Well, first of all, let's imagine three people on a hill. Uh, they're all looking in different directions. This is uh, roughly 5,000 years ago. And we are, let's say we're in the forest, and we, we're looking in different directions. We, unfortunately, have, in this situation, have binocular vision and can't see behind ourselves. And we can combine all of our perspectives for a worldview. But to do that, I really need to trust the people around me. And in so doing, I also have to understand, you know, the person over here has had a lot of bad experiences with bears in the past and may hear almost everything in the woods as a, as a possible bear. This person over here uh, has this is their first time to go out with all of us. And um, they might not even recognize that sound as something they should hear. And so these are when you have a lot of trust and you know the people, you have rapport that's built with the with your group, you can disagree or you can understand that disagreement's possible and sort of utilize it. And that's that's built into the way we evolved these systems for communication. So that's an, a hugely important portion of how we combine our worldviews and decide on what we're going to do. If I hear a sound in the forest and I start discussing with, with the my uh peers what what we ought to do that's the kind of discussion we're going to have given we know that we might disagree and we'll sort of zero in on things so this group reasoning process is essential we have emotions like shame we fear things like ostracism we value our reputations and we manage our reputations because we evolved to do those things to maintain a sort of group cohesion so we could pursue group goals and decide on group actions and then notice when someone's being a bad participant and all of that and then take action, appropriate action for that. So that's just part of who we are as, as, as social primates. We're, we're not just social primates. We're ultra social primates. Sociality <laughs> is, is what gives us almost all of our advantages that have led to the, the fact that we can talk like we're talking right now across great distances. So what happens when you're alone is something I, I like to call the, the confirmation bias goggles, which is let's say you're alone in a tent in the woods and you hear a sound. And you think, oh, that could be a bear. So you have this visceral, emotional reaction, negative affect, as they would say in psychology, uh, comes into to, to your body. And you take out a flashlight. And what you attempt to do is to you have anxiety and you're trying to confirm that it's reasonable for you to have this anxiety. And you do so by searching the forest for possible signs of, of bear activity. <laughs> so the and then. In this situation, you might find confirmation, you might find disconfirmation, you might find false positives, and so on. If you do that exact same thing on the Internet, what will happen is uh, you have an anxiety about something that's taking place. You take out your flashlight and you go looking for confirmation that your anxiety is reasonable. You will find that confirmation. Some, <laughs> even if 99 percent, yeah. 99 websites say no, but that one that you find... Right. Oh, there it is. Right. There's the bear. And if your anxiety is really strong or your identity is very connected to this anxiety or to these emotions that you're experiencing or your values are deeply held within that domain, you'll be more likely to uh, go with that one positive versus all the all the negatives. So this what happens is that psychological process leads to the process of finding the others uh, and the others are the people who share your emotional state. And that can lead to forming groups and those groups can end up having very quick action. So the weird thing about the internet, I'm not really a post truth person. I'm more of a post trust person. And I feel that you, the, the truth is out there. The trust is not. And people tend to group up very quick. The, the internet allows us to group up very quickly over anything. 
And once we group up, a whole different set of psychological mechanisms then motivate us and drive us. And those mechanisms are what we're talking about here when it comes to tribalism. Some scientists don't like using the word tribalism. I'm okay. I understand that. Sometimes it's just, you know, in-group, out-group, uh, group cohesion, just partisanship sometimes. So it doesn't really matter the word we're using. It matters that we, the concept here is that we, is group reasoning and group identity. So Charlie Veach, uh, I, I heard about Charlie Veach. Uh, Will Store had helped me find Charlie. The Charlie was, um, a 9-11 truther back in the early days of 9-11 truthing when that, that was way bigger than maybe it is now for, for a lot of people. It was large groups of people just simply believed that 9-11 was an inside job, that everything involving 9-11 was a conspiracy, that the buildings had been controlled demolitions set up by the government or by the dark government, the, the deep state or, or something like that, the Illuminati, the nefarious uh, people running, actually running the world, blew up the buildings. The, some, of, some of them believe like, you know, the airplanes were empty or that there were actors and all sorts of things go into this sort of conspiratorial framework. But the idea was that someone, a nefarious unseen them created the 9-11 experience to manipulate the flow of history and war and everything as they go along with it, oil and all the other stuff. So Charlie was a big member of this group. He had um, had put out YouTube videos and those YouTube videos were starting to really gain in popularity. And he started going on things like uh, the Alex Jones program and sort of making friends with those people. It would look like he was going to end up maybe becoming uh, like taking the crown and like uh, being the next in line of secession for that community. Spent a lot of time with David Icke, the um, reptile overlords guy. <laughs> and uh, so he's in that space and he's doing really well. And because of that, he was invited on this reality show that the BBC made called uh, Conspiracy Road Trip. And each episode had a different group of conspiracy theorists. And sort of the, the hook of the show was that you take all these people, you get them, you take them to the actual places, you have them meet the actual experts and they don't change their minds. That was sort of the hook of it. And it was one of those very pessimistic, cynical programs. And, of course, watching them argue with experts was sort of the reality show sparks that, that they, they were going for. But in his episode, he goes to Ground Zero. He he and his other fellow truthers, they learn how to fly an actual commercial airliner using one of those humongous simulators. They actually do fly a single-engine aircraft all over New York after only a couple of uh, uh, training experiences. They meet the people who, the architects of the World Trade Center, I mean, they go to ground zero, all the ground zeros. They go to New York, they go to Pennsylvania, they go to the Pentagon. They meet people who were there on the day, who experienced, who were part of the cleanup, who lost family members. And most importantly, they met uh, widows and widowers. And Charlie, in that experience, really, it was really powerful for him to meet people who had lost family members and to, to cry with them and, to, and to, to, to embrace them and all. And what happened was he just was he had these very specific questions, one of which was like he believed that the, the towers were demolitions and that they fell into their footprints. But he met with a demolitions expert who explained to him with Legos like he showed him like that's not how it happened. It was blown out and uh, they did fall in their footprints. Uh, they didn't fall in footprints. They, they blew out and uh, it couldn't have been a controlled demolition because to do that, you would have to do all these things. And he ran them through how, how that would work. And it was just convincing to the, to him. And his big thing was, you know, jet fuel can't, uh, you know, melt steel beams. And he was like, well, you know, you don't have to do that. If you just, you have an entire building above this beam. If it just bends this little bitty bit, the rest of the way the building will do all the work. And he explained all this to Charlie in a way that just made sense. But it was the, the widows that he, that he met that really, um, 
really put it over for him, watching her cry. And, and he's like, no, you're not. An, this really happened to you. He goes to the hotel room and his fellow truthers were like, wow, what a show, huh? And uh, like, I can't believe they found actors who are so good at crying. And he just was disgusted by this. And he realized, oh, wow, I, I'm, I'm not only am I wrong, but I'm in a, I'm a, maybe I'm in a group of people that I need to rethink. So he goes to Times Square. He films himself and he puts it up on YouTube saying, if we're a community who's devoted the truth, my mind has been changed. Uh, I, I'll, I'll share more videos with you about this in the future, but I just want you to know, I, I no longer think that this was an inside job. And uh, the reaction to that was horrifying. They absolutely obliterated his life. Uh, his the, the truth of community he was a part of um, did everything imaginable to him, including finding photographs of his uh, niece and nephew, photoshopping their faces on the child pornography, sending that to his mother. Get, trying to get him fired, uh, just trying to ruin his reputation, all for just one thing, which is just changing his mind. But as I explained in this chapter, it wasn't just changing his mind. It was saying, I reject this group, mm. which puts everyone else in the, in the group in the position of, oh, am I in the wrong group? Is my identity, my group identity, something maybe I should reconsider? And that's very difficult to do as a social primate. So their reaction was to try to ostracize him and, and excommunicate him which they did. And the big question for me with Charlie was how come he changed his mind with just raw facts, which for a lot of the book, we're talking about how raw facts aren't really the best way to persuade people, but why did it work on him? If we're in a post truth world, how did the truth straight up work on a truther? And the secret sauce of this, the, the, the thing that was that I had not noticed until I spent time with people who had left Westboro Baptist church and I, I spent time with people who had left groups like the Moonies and things like that. It was that the, uh, the ground truth of all of this, the thing that they had in common was most of them had another group that they were also a member of, or they had a community of people who valued the same core values and affirmed those core values in a way that they didn't have to depend on this one other group to do so. In other words, they could experience social costs that other people within the group could not experience uh, because they didn't have a social safety net. They couldn't change their minds basically because when it comes to group identity and it comes to tribalism, accuracy goals, Trump, I mean, uh, belonging goals, Trump accuracy goals every time Mm -hmm. Uh, we would, we're willing to be wrong if it keeps us in good standing with our peers. And he had the opportunity. He had another group of people called truth Jews. He was a member of, and because he was such a, a strong member of that group, he had the social safety net to abandon that group. And that's what leads into the book, talking about all these things that lead people into the, this sort of prison of uh, so, social costs and social rewards of sanctions and ostracism and what allows a person to escape that. And how if a person is trapped in it, whether it's a family member or it's somebody you're talking to, how you can create a off ramp for that person to get out of the, the social prison they found themselves with there. In that chapter, we talk about things like um, uh, the minimal group paradigm and uh, sort of dissonance reducing causal narratives and all the, there's a million, the, the conspiratorial loop. Uh, and we can get into any of that at length if you want, but th- that's, that's the gist of why, uh, how we get to the truth is tribal and how uh, for a lot of us, and I know we've all experienced this, the insurrection was a good example of that, where when the insurrection took place, a lot of people who were 
uh, in the same sort of political camp as the people who engaged in the insurrection had a strong cognitive dissonance boiled up inside them where they had one attitude, which was it's good to be a supporter of that political group. And they has other strong attitude, which is like the people who are in my group are doing bad things, which makes it seem like my group is bad. And for a portion of that community, the way out of that is instead of changing my attitude about the group I'm a member of, I can simply interpret this as that wasn't my group. I can say those must be actors. That must have been a false flag operation. And now the dissonance evaporates and I can continue to maintain my attitude. And a lot of that's how we escape cognitive dissonance often is simply instead of changing our belief or changing our attitude, we change our interpretation of, of the evidence and escape is right there. And that's one of the ways we enter into spiritual world thinking. All right. Now we get to groove on some really fun stuff. How much of our worldview is social in nature? <laughs> How do we get pulled into conspiracy theories? And and why? Why, Tim, is it so hard to escape them? You know, you ask that as if like none of, none of the <laughs> nothing else that we've talked about so far has been fascinating. Oh my god. <laughs> it just gets more and more fascinating. That's all. That's all. Okay, so David talked about how we are the ultra social primates. Right. <laughs> I think this is a an idea that is really key. Right. I love this analogy of being alone in the forest and hearing a sound and then looking for confirmation bias that the sound is a bear. It's it's just like the way that when we're on the Internet and we're searching it alone, we can find 99 percent of the websites that do not support our pre-held beliefs of the bear. But then we find and we hone in on that one percent that do that do confirm our beliefs. Mm -hmm. And that is the difference between like being in a group and talking about the noise that we hear and the, of just searching on the internet all alone. It's so critical to get to this point that we process information differently when we're ruminating on it alone compared to when we're talking about it in a group. And I think, Tim, that is a really important distinction, at least in my mind. This idea that when we search for things on the Internet, and as we've said before, even though it's called social media, it's really solitary media, right? Yeah, truly. Um, that the process that we go through, the, the way that we process the information is different than if we were holding a face-to-face -face conversation with someone else, particularly someone that we trust. Yeah. But, which again, you're thinking about the sound in the forest, right? The, the, that piece. And if I'm, you know, scared about it, I'm going to be putting all of these things. But if you're out there, you're going, Oh, no, that's, that's more likely a deer. It's more likely, Oh, it's just the, it's yeah. the wind rustling through. I can tell. And then all of a sudden we get these different things and that is a whole different conversation. And it, it changes my perspective on that sound much more so than if it was me alone. And then we do the same thing. In, in, you know, social or, you know, self media or however yeah. we want to call it, right? Which leads to all sorts of implications on how conspiracy theories are seemingly more prevalent today than they were 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, that came true in Charlie's story, yeah. uh, the Westboro Baptist Church story. You know, it, it's central to escaping our ultra social primate selves. And our ongoing desire to belong, like we need to have a safety net and our social groups, our real social groups, you know, they are where we find that. Yeah. Our, our need to belong trumps our reasoning ability that truth is tribal. I love that. Truth is tribal. 
God, no, isn't that the truth? We are held in, I think he used the term social prison, <laughs> right? <laughs> Again, he has such wonderful ways of conveying this information. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we need to have this safety net, this other group where you can go and have that sense of belonging. Otherwise, it's just too much risk in seeking the truth. It's just too scary. And then it comes back to the dress. The yeah. idea that while we think that by showing somebody the facts that they should be able to reason their way to the truth, but they don't see those facts the same way that you or I do. Right. They see a black and blue dress while we see a gold and white dress. Without the group safety net, our subconscious minds warp the facts to fit with what the group believes. I uh, That is just a key piece here, and we can't see it any other way. The social costs are just too high for our brains to let that happen. The ultra social primate, right? It, it's just too, it's too, we're, we're stuck in that prison. Hello, Solomon Ash. Mm, there you go. Oh my God. The line, which line is longer? Oh, hey. So it was, it was just amazing that Charlie was able to change, wasn't it? I, oh my God. Yeah. It just, and, and that story that is being woven throughout. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. It, it's, it's quite remarkable. I mean, it turned out that having a social net, you know, from the other group end up helping him overcome the confirmation bias that blinded him so much. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah. And the good news is that we can change our minds, that we don't have to fall prey to confirmation bias and that having that social safety net is key. Having conversations that are compassionately curious helps. Mm-hmm. Being able to process things in my own mind, in my own manner, and exploring the implications of my thinking on my own terms, they all help. Agreed. Okay, let's jump back to our conversation where we're going to talk about two of my favorite things, change blindness and music. <laughs> you have been a fan of conspiratorial thinking for a long time. Mm-hmm. I, again, I, I trace my, my fanhood of David McCraney back to early <laughs> podcasts, right? I mean, gosh, we could, we could start even with Dan Simons and in the oh, yeah. blindness, very, but, but first episode. Yeah. 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 Very first episode. But you, in your launch trailer, you brought up the, you know, you had that great, that great voice, that guy doing that. Yeah. Lincoln and, or Kennedy and Lincoln and <laughs> John know, F. Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln. Abraham was, Lincoln. Yeah. yeah. And 15 letters and three names and the assassins never made it. You've been fascinated with conspiracy thinking for a long yeah, time. What, sure. what was the hook? What, what was the catalyst? Family. That, I have family who are big conspiracy <laughs> believers. I grew up in Mississippi with, uh, uh, around some very hard, like, I remember when Westboro was first bubbling up, thinking like for like, this is just a Baptist church. Like this is, I mean, I know, I mean, I apologize to everybody who's currently in a Baptist church right now, but my hometown Baptist churches were not much different than Westboro. They just didn't, they just hadn't come up with a cool hook to get them public, you know, fame or whatever. But then like, you know, conspiratorial communities and conspiratorial logic seemed very similar to how people were able to maintain and jump through all these hoops that you have to jump through to stay in them. And then, you know, so did you recognize it as a kid? I mean, when, when do you have this awareness, this cognition that, wait a minute, this, this is happening all over. I think it was when like in the, I was, uh, my escape out of my home town, instead of joining the circus, I joined the internet, which is how, how a lot of people were able to do, right? <laughs> like when you were, when you were trapped geographically and, uh, socioeconomically for, for people, I think around my age, the internet was this wonderful way to get out, get out. 
But as soon as you get into the Internet, one of the first things you find are, oh, look at all these communities who believe really weird shit. (laughs) But they're fascinating. And and you are uh, there's a lot of allure, too, because a lot of the things that are making you upset about your day to day life, they're like, it's because of this. It's because of the Illuminati. It's because of the easy answers for really tough questions. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think that. My being one of the first being part of that wave of that, the, the, and then finding like um, the trying to sort through all that and discovering sort of there's a the cyberpunk side of those things, which will eventually get you to things like Timothy Leary and Terrence McKenna, where you're like, I'm I'm connecting here on some level. But also included in that is a whole lot of strange woo ideas that I'm not sure I believe in. And that. Is just, there was just so much conspiratorial logic in the that uh, the Wild West version of the Internet before it became the shopping mall version of the Internet that we have today. <laughs> uh, that was my introduction to all of it. And um, being super uh, going to school for psychology and, and being and starting to see things in the domain that I am currently still obsessed with. It was the Simon's research and the invisible gorilla type stuff, uh, change blindness that yeah. made me realize, oh, look at this. <laughs> look, look, like, like all of it's not that we get fooled. It's that we aren't aware that we're getting fooled. Right. And then it's like, it's not even that. It's that we're so sure we're not being fooled uh, and that we're not fooling ourselves that became the hook to me. And that seemed like something that would help explain almost all the other weirdness that was going on. And if you're not familiar with the change blindness thing for listeners, like it's this great, it, it was a Darren Brown thing. But luckily I was in school at the time and I could see that he had used, uh, he often partners with psychologists to develop his, his, uh, mentalist things. Uh, he had a thing where, uh, you know, you ask somebody for directions on a college campus and then two people walk between you and the person. Like, let's say somebody walks up to you as asking for, uh, directions to get to the commons. And then as you're giving them directions, two people walk between you and the other person and they're usually holding a big, in this, in Darren Brown's thing, they were holding a giant painting, which was of Darren Brown, just to make it funnier. And <laughs> and one of the people holding it switches places with the person who was asking you for directions. And in the show, he kept showing that the people never noticed. Yeah. And he would, like, switch it out with people who were different, you know, who were taller, shorter, uh, different skin tones. Uh, uh, like, we'd replace it with a woman. And, like, and they just wouldn't notice. And I was like, unbelievable. So I... Went and looked at the research, and uh, the it was the same people who did the invisible gorilla experiment had started with that. And in the actual in their experiment, they had people turn in a piece of like do a questionnaire and turn it in, and the person had to duck down behind a desk and then come back up and give it back to them. Right. And then they would debrief them and say, "Did you notice it was a different person?" And depending on the research, sometimes it's half. It can be as high as half of the people don't notice. And I thought that was my introduction to this side of psychology was I imagined we were doing that for everything. Like we were unaware of how unaware we were. And that led us to be the unreliable narrator in the story of our own like personal narrative, our own selves. And that led that made me feel very strongly that this probably an avenue into conspiratorial thinking as well. There's probably something about that there. And that's what got me sort of, that's what got, that's what, and I never have stopped talking about conspiratorial thinking in that key. And I love like Annie Sternisko, anyone who's listening, Annie Sternisko is doing great work in there. Uh, Joseph Yuzinski is doing great work in that, in that place. And they just keep finding new aspects of what both leads people into those groups and what maintains it. Stephen Novella was very helpful about uh, describing the, 
conspiratorial logic loop, which is the thing I think I am most fascinated by. You can enter into a logic loop that's very difficult to escape, where if you find evidence that suggests that you're wrong, you can say that evidence was planted to throw me off the case. (laughs) Or if you need a certain, uh, you need some sort of evidence that you haven't received yet to confirm that the conspiracy is true and you can't find it, you can say, ah, they're covering that up and keeping it from me. And with those two elements, you can never escape the loop. The only way out is to use is to have some sort of metacognitive experience where you realize you're in the loop. And most of the time, the only way to get that is through guided metacognition with a partner who will help you. And that's why these a lot of the persuasion techniques in this in this new book, uh, they pretty much boil down to that guided metacognition for like if someone was someone who not an insurrectionist, but somebody who thought that was a false flag. It would be very difficult to just throw evidence at them to show that they were incorrect. But if you went through their processing and helped them see that processing for themselves, uh, pull the string instead of push it, as I say, they would realize on their own, privately, saving uh, face, without shame, the that, oh, okay, I see how I went into that space, and that you're more likely to eject someone from the loop that way than you would if you're trying to brute force them out of it. Yeah. I've used that Dan and Chris Everest's video hundreds and hundreds of times on audiences, and it's so fantastic to see that group of people who are like, how could you even say there was, there was a gorilla <laughs> there when there was obviously no gorilla? Like, don't be mm-hmm. an idiot. You know, and, and this is very visceral reaction. And then you show it again. It's like, yeah, it's oh, the confidence yeah. that, drew, that that I love. It's like we're so sure that we get a one to one input and yeah. that all of our memories are one to one accurate. And once you once you yeah. are given the gift yeah. of realizing that's not so changes everything about how you understand yourself and other people's behavior. It can. It can yes. For some, yeah. For, yeah. It can. It can. for some, not as much. For some people, it's like, aha, yes, I knew everyone but me yes. was an idiot. <laughs> what I love about that too is even then, then like the people who have seen it, and you've seen the the recent ones where the curtain in the background oh, yeah. changes color, and so yeah, so they're they're looking and you're they're doing yeah. that, and you go, yeah, I saw the gorilla, but then you go, well, did you see that the yeah. color of the curtain changed from red to blue, and they're like, yeah. oh, and so even yeah. even knowing the trick, right, yeah. they don't mm-hmm. see that's, the trick, uh, and that's that's a fascinating piece for me. Is yeah, they call that they call that the yeah, yeah, fallacy, which is one of my favorite things. Knowing, knowing is not half the battle. Like like like, <laughs> and, and 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 furthermore, knowing that knowing is not half the battle is also not half the battle. <laughs> you can keep going down that loop as long as you want. Right. I'm putting a making an episode about this. There's another change, form of change blindness that blows my mind. That it, they have people, um, they ask people's opinions on, uh, Swedish researchers did this. It's so beautiful. They ask people their opinions on wedge issues and they have them mark on a piece of paper, like zero to 10, where they feel on a wedge issue. And then the researcher takes the board back and then very sleight of hand quickly slaps a sticker on it. That is the exact same uh, questionnaire, but they've all the numbers are different now because they, it's a pre marked sticker. And then they turn and face the person and say, so, on uh, immigration, you said that you were a three. And I'm wondering, why would you, why, why, why are you a three on that? Now, the person actually marked a nine. <laughs> and they will dutifully stand there and explain why they're a three on that issue as if that's what they had marked originally. And my God, Solomon Ash would be so amazing, happy. amazing, right? Because what they're worried about <laughs> oh now God. is reputation management and trustworthiness with the yeah, person yeah. they're interacting with. 
and they forget that's not even what the, their opinion is, but they will defend a different opinion than they hold because the point of the conversation is the defense of the opinion. Well, and that goes back to memory, right? And you even brought up in the book the uh, after the space shuttle uh, oh, yeah. um, blew up, and I can't remember the researcher who, who who did that work, but had them write down where they were, what they were thinking, and all these different things, and then came back to them three years later, and people are going, that's not yeah, what you, happened. This whole this clearly yeah. is a trick. Like I didn't, I did not write yeah. that. I don't know who wrote that. I didn't write that. It's in my handwriting, but it's not. I, <laughs> I obviously <laughs> didn't do that. Somebody else must have copied that's my incredible, handwriting, right? Because yeah. the the in the processing chain, if the emotion of confidence is is not available, then we will assume that we don't believe that anymore, and and it happens mm-hmm. to us yeah. without our, our asking. No different than like bumping your knee on a table. Like the pain arrives without my choice. The feeling or lack thereof of confidence arrives without a cho- without my input, and we then assume after that feeling whether we that we do or do not believe a thing. And I know that's terrifying to understand about ourselves, but it is a true aspect of how we make sense of the world. Yeah, we do need to get a little bit of conversation about. Oh music. God, let's go. You said you were you said you were <laughs> up for this. I'm up for anything. Yeah. Okay, so let's start with the desert island model. You're on a desert. Okay, so you finished okay. the book. Now you've got a whole year where you can just just rusticate on a desert island, and with you is going to be two musical artists. You get the whole catalog. Which two artists are you going to? One's going to be Radiohead. Easy, easy. Okay. Oh wow. Okay. Part of me because like I used to be such a newly a new addition to the world, edge lord, angry, big ass skeptic place that a lot of people start out with. So like Tool is definitely a big part of that. Which you will find either through Timothy Leary or and Terrence McKenna, or you'll find Terrence McKenna and Timothy Leary through Tool. So I <laughs> I almost want to say that, but then I'm like, no, I've listened to enough of that. So the other artist would be, mm, so number one's gonna be Radiohead, and the next one would be, um, oh, what is, I can't remember his name. His name is Colin. I can't remember his last name, but he's the the saxophone guy. He he plays that giant like saxophone that he breathe and he does circle breathing. And oh, really? so he can play a saxophone infinitely because he's breathing, you know, he's circular breathing on saxophone. Wow. I don't want to say it incorrectly. It's the giant saxophone, the one that's very deep. And he a baritone sax. I think that's what is that it? OK, he that's the big one, the yeah. big one. And he claps the uh, the stoppers and he breathes into it. And at some points he even screams in the thing. And he creates this music that for some reason immediately makes me just want to strip down to a loincloth and get on a boat and invade somebody. And, <laughs> and, and, go, and go to a and, desert island. I feel when he said desert island, that's what came up because I'm like, I could I could dance around a fire to that for months. So the wonder of, Stetson, of the that's internet Colin is Stetson. Uh, Colin Stetson. Yeah, there you Colin go. Colin Stetson. I'm going to have to check him out. That's that's cool. We talked to Linda Babcock just a couple of weeks ago, and she brought up the mountain goats. And I'm like, okay, that's obscure. <laughs> but honestly, Colin Stetson just – just took another step towards obscurity for me. That's fantastic. Give it, give it a go. It, it, but do do have a campfire ready. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And a broadsword, possibly. Oh, I mean, you're going to make a broadsword of that music. That's bro- oh, that's, okay. black, that's blacksmithing music. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I, I'm actually, I was like on tool. All right. Here's somebody that I can actually kind of, uh you know, align with going down here. I'm with you. Look, I've, I've been to eight tool concerts. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I mean, tool is one of those things where like the, the tool fandom is pretty like, uh, but then again, it's also the third person effect where you're like, remember, remember they had people of Walmart. That was a meme thing that was going yeah. around. 
where you'd take pictures of people in Walmart and go like, look at this person. I can't believe they wore that. But like, you're in Walmart taking their picture. (laughs) (laughs) You're a person of Walmart. How, who are you to judge? Uh, that's, they call that the third person effect. Uh, I'm, I'm like that with tool. Like, I, yes, I stick the, I, the, I, I put fear inoculum in the, in the car, in the truck. And blast it on my way to do errands all the time. So I try to third person my way out of it, but yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm into it. Right. David McCraney, thank you so very much for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves. My immense supreme pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to this. My gosh, if you are hearing this, congratulations, because you have listened to the longest episode that we have ever published, the longest interview, the longest of anything. It's fantastic. Oh, my God. Is this truly? This is the longest interview? I'm pretty sure that this is the longest interview. Wow. Wow. Well, it was it was interesting. So the topics, the stories, the insights. Hopefully, listeners, you are able to take something from this episode that you can apply to your life. Maybe how you approach somebody who holds a very different worldview than or, you. Yeah, or how you need to think about the reasons why you might want to change someone's mind. Or that facts by themselves are not enough typically to get people to change those opinions. Or how elaboration and the likelihood of it happening are key to effective change messages. Or just realizing that we all see the world through different lenses and that the blue and black dress you see may be a gold and white dress for someone else. But you know it's blue and black. (laughs) No, Tim, it is actually, it's gold and white. No, 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 blue and black. Gold and white, Tim. <laughs> All right. I guess that maybe we need to rethink what we just learned here, Kurt. Uh, let's start with some compassionate curiosity. <laughs> Tell me about what you see and how confident you are in that perception. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that's a great place to start. And with that, Groovers, we hope that you can go out and find some compassionate curiosity and take some of the learnings from this episode and go out and find your group.